0: Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I am here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless.
1: David How are you doing after that epic episode? We just came out of perhaps the best Bankless episode we've ever recorded with Vance Spencer of Framework. Vance got on my radar when he did the podcast with uh, Dimitri from Hidden Forces. And he just nailed everything I thought about DeFi. And so we wanted to get him onto the Bankless podcast to do a podcast with two hosts that live inside of the DeFi ecosystem instead of outside of it. And Vance just hit it out of the park. Uh, This podcast was absolutely insane. Uh, We kind of go through the the history of communities that came out of the 2017 mania, went through a grueling bear market together, created culture while while their respective teams created protocols and turned into the DeFi protocols that we know of them today. And then we talk about liquidity mining and governance tokens and distributing ownership over these pseudo equity cash flow protocols. And then we talk about how these things compose together. And then we finish off with some of the most insanely bullish predictions I've ever heard ever about crypto at the very <laughs> end. So you guys gotta yeah. listen to the whole thing. This this episode just flowed so beautifully. Ron, what did you think about this episode? Yeah, you know, we always
0: talk about in the in the intro, we always talk about how to get started, how to get better, how to front-run the opportunity. This is an episode that will help you front-run the opportunity because Vance. And the framework folks have been front running the opportunity in DeFi since the whole thing started in 2017, 2018. So, if you listen to like one episode on DeFi and you're trying to get insights into what's next, what's the future, trying to understand how to like invest, deploy capital in the space this would be the one to listen to. Of course, the 27 episodes previous are also some essential listening as well. So if this is your first bankless episode, go check out the archive, a lot of gold in the archive, and we've been building up to this point. David, you know what? I've got kind of no more to say on this. I think we should
1: just get to the goods and go right into the episode. Yeah, there's nothing more that, that we could add to this insanely dense episode. But before we get there, we're going to take a moment to talk about our fantastic bankless sponsors. The first sponsor I want to tell you about is Ave.
0: Ave is a DeFi protocol that you absolutely have to check out. What can you do with it? You can lend, you can borrow banklessly all on Ethereum. So you could do things like lend DAI to the protocol. It will magically transform that DAI into an interest-bearing DAI account, not just DAI, All sorts of crypto assets on Ethereum. You can also borrow against it. Um, Aave has been climbing up the leaderboard as well, and they've recently released Avanomics, which is their token economics upgrade. You can read more about it. We will include a link in the show notes. So, Avanomics grants key decision making to Aave. Token holders. It creates more safety and economic incentives to reward protocol growth. One of the coolest things is it actually introduces a safety module. So there is staked Ave becomes a collateral of last resort. You can find out about Ave, Avenomics, start using the protocol at Aave.com. That's A-A-V-E.com.
1: For those of you that have been transacting on Ethereum, you've noticed that the gas prices have just been insanely high, you know, 60 Guay on a good day and sometimes all the way up to 100 Guay, which is really reducing the amount of activities that is really feasible to be able to do on Ethereum. This is where our newest sponsor Loopring comes in. Loopring is a ZK roll up scaling protocol for Ethereum for both trading and for payments. Uh, ZK rollups, that stands for zero knowledge rollups. It's basically cryptographic magic. It allows you to combine activity and transactions into one single bit of information, which means that massive amounts of transactions can be bundled into a very small chunk of information, which reduces the gas per transaction. At loopring.io, you can find a ZK rollups based exchange and also a payment mechanism all with the same security guarantees of the Ethereum L1 blockchain, which is really important. So Loopring and ZK Rollups allows you to scale up transactions, tradings, payments into thousands and thousands of transactions per second, but with the same security guarantees of the main Ethereum blockchain, which is just incredible. In September, Loopring is releasing the Loopring wallet. This will be a mobile smart contract wallet with ZK Rollups tucked in natively. I'm really excited for how this is going to impact the adoption Option of Ethereum, The rest of the world will be able to experience Venmo type transactions, but with the same amount of trustlessness and security of the decentralized future ahead of us. So if you're a trader that's being eaten alive by gas fees, visit Loopring.io to get onboarded into Ethereum's cheapest and fastest exchange. All it requires is an Ethereum address and you can trade on a high performance order book completely gas free and transferring Ether and ERC20 tokens on the platform is completely free. If you visit loopering.io, enter the code bankless in order to get the highest VIP tier for six months. So check that out, there's a link in the show notes. Visit loopering.io, enter code bankless. All right, let's get to the episode with Vance.
0: Bankless Nation, we are so excited to bring on our special guest, Vance Spencer. Vance is the co-founder of Framework Ventures, which is a DeFi-first crypto fund. We'll talk about what that means in just a minute. But it basically means he and his partner had the thesis of DeFi before it was cool. Now everyone's doing it. He's got a background in Silicon Valley uh, as well. Vance, how the heck are you doing?
2: Is this... A DeFi bull market, my friend, that we're in. Hey, uh, thanks for thanks for having me on. Uh, is this a DeFi bull market? It certainly seems like there's a lot of enthusiasm. I think uh, you know, with all the vegetable coins coming out, it, it's a <laughs> certain, uh, euphoria. Um, you know, I think it's uh, it's it's good to see the, the technology progress. It's good to see the community rallying around these kind of new primitives. It's good to see more users in the space. Uh, I don't know if I would call it a bull run quite yet, um, but uh, certainly things are heading in the right direction.
0: All right. So maybe I missed some vegetable coins, guys. What what else is there? I know there's yams, but are we at like, you know, potatoes? Are we broccoli
2: yet? It's hands, yams, you know, spaghetti, uh, <laughs> okay. the whole food pyramid of DeFi coins. Um, right. So
1: well, we're hitting we're all not, the
2: food groups. Yeah, you got to hit all your food groups for proper nutrition. I mean, we're not specifically bullish on one section of the food pyramid versus another, but uh, it's, uh, it's good to see the whole food pyramid getting the, the attention it deserves.
0: Well, well, one right. thing you've been consistent on is your consistent bull thesis for DeFi. Can we talk about that for a minute? If you, if you were to summarize, Vance, the framework bull thesis for DeFi, the why DeFi, what is it?
2: Our, our pitch on DeFi is, is three things. You know, number one, finance is the world's largest market for consumer enterprise software. Number two, uh, there's been almost no innovation uh, in finance for the past 30 or 40 years. And and the reason there has been no innovation in finance for the past 30 or 40 years is because there's no developer sandbox. If you develop a game or if you develop a uh, you know social networking app, you can go to the iOS app store, you can get it on TestFlight, you can get instant distribution into millions and millions of iPhones. Um, if you want to develop a financial product, your path to getting that out into the market is effectively to go work for Goldman or Morgan Stanley for twenty years, get senior enough to propose, you know, some new exotic instrument, uh, and then hope to get it pushed through. You know, there's really no developer first ethos in finance <clears throat> until now. And what we think DeFi is, uh, and and this is always evolving, but you know, generally it, it it is the developer sandbox for finance. You know, today anyone in the world, whether you're a developer in India, a developer in China. Um, you know, smart kid living on the West Coast, East Coast, United States, whatever, you can go and build synthetic assets. You can go and build an AMM. You can go and build uh, new and interesting applications built off the financial primitives and the tooling that is based on Ethereum today. And, and that's something that's fundamentally new. And when things get, you know, 10 to 100 times cheaper, you know, innovation naturally explodes. You saw that with uh, Amazon Web Services, you saw that with the iPhone becoming this new developer platform and distribution mechanism um and you know i think that's kind of where our our bull case for defi comes from um on a on a really general sense in a very specific sense you know we're bullish on the people in the industry i think it's all just about people um you know you have the andres you have the michael from curbs you have Keynes, you have robert leshners you have runes like these are very unique people in the sense that you know, these probably aren't the likely candidates to go and start an equity-based company, but the the DNA of a founder in this space is just so much different, uh, and it's so interesting, um, and they move so fast that it's just hard to not be as bullish on the space as we are on the people in it, you know, itself. So it's really the permissionless aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm I'm super excited to see how we can uh put the supply chain on a blockchain and and track strawberry shipments in real time. But like, I think the real innovation is going to be um just new things that we can do with this technology and and just the the creativity of developers around the world. You know, seeing Robert Leshner build uh, a unicorn in two years, like that's a huge just flag that he planted in the ground, and and that's going to uh, serve as a rallying point for people. Um, yeah. So,
0: Vance, I've just on this permissionless point uh, for, for just one second. I, you know, some people outside of DeFi have said, "Well, if the traditional banking system just opened up all of their APIs, you'd basically have the same thing." So, there's efforts to do that in Europe, and maybe it's more advanced in Europe than it is in uh, the U.S. Do you believe that's true? Like, what if all of the banking, like infrastructure API layer, just sort of opened up? Would we have permissionless finance that way too?
2: So the European regulation as it relates to banks is is effectively opening up, up all APIs for read access. That's a lot different than write access, and it's a lot different than, than fully kind of embedding a permissionless permissionlessness within the, the banking stack itself. So, you know, I'm pretty bearish on uh, just like the open up the bank APIs and, and we'll have a permissionless finance uh, kind of ecosystem today. I really think you need to re-architect this stuff from the ground up.
1: Yeah, Vance, you you said that you're bullish on DeFi because of the financial sandbox, and there are and, and what we're talking about is there are perhaps ways that that the legacy system could open up and be a little bit more uh, modular and experimental. But why, at the core of the of the problem, why is traditional finance so gated? Like what? It, who's gating it? Is it the, the private banking industry, or is it like the the uh, nation state regulations? Why can't we have what we have in the DeFi world today with with financial experimentation in the legacy system? Like, who's holding that back?
2: It's it's honestly a mixture of both. Um, you know, the enterprise enterprises that control the financial stack as it you know lives today. They really have no incentivization mechanism to open it up for third-party developers um, and, and to do a true permissionlessness financial system. Um, they would have to develop new business models, they would have to potentially cannibalize what they already have going. It's uh it's just you know something that doesn't have a very clear value prop for them. And on top of that, you know, they're burdened by regulations uh, and you know things that they need to do as a financial services business to stay compliant within whatever geography that they're currently located in. So you know, there's the old adage that it's really hard to turn like, you know, a uh, hundred and a hundred and just a huge cruise liner. Uh, but with a smaller boat, you can be a bit more agile and get place get placed a bit faster. Um, so I'm just like more bullish on just this bottoms up developer movement rather than like a top down re-architecture of the existing financial system.
1: So the DeFi protocols that we've seen lately, and you rattled off a, a list of DeFi entrepreneurs DeFi seems to be able to offer like the the breeding ground for like a new type of person, right? And and you you listed like uh Rune, Kane, uh, you know, uh, just the, the the leaders of these DeFi protocols that are but like perhaps like technically minded, they're developers, but they're also financially minded as well. And so there seems to be like this new breeding ground for these new types of people that are coming from the the finance world and also coming from the tech world that Uh, is now enabled to do something experimental and so there is now like so many more like finance startups that are enabled by by crypto and by DeFi.
2: if you look in traditional industries versus what's going on in crypto you know the amount of greenfield in crypto both on the there's not a lot of people experimenting there yet and on the kind of this is just a massive wave that people are going to ride you know, the opportunity is is relatively um, large compared to just kind of developing a, a basic, you know, C-Corp equity style company. Um, but with that, you know, comes additional risks. Like, you know, one of the things that I ask founders when they say, you know, we want to do a token, we want to hand this over to the community, we want to, you know, fully decentralize this. You know, one of the questions I ask is like, you know, are are you about that life? Like, th- is that something that you really want to do? You know, it's you're playing for a much larger outcome uh, because you're looking at basically the re-architecture of finance uh, in the 21st century. But it also comes with, uh, you know, regulatory gray area. It comes with, um, you know, moving uh, organizational control of your baby to a DAO or people you don't know. I think the people that do these things the best are the ones that just full on embrace it, you know, whole hog and and just go for it. You see Andre, you know, you know, just distributing Wi-Fi to people based on the premise that this is software that he builds, that he will continue to develop it, but he doesn't want to organize it anymore. You know, that's very powerful. You see Kane doing the same thing with the three DAO structure. You see Robert Leshner doing the same thing with progressive decentralization it really isn't for everybody, but the entrepreneurs that self-select to be in this space are, are just of an incredible caliber because they're at the cutting edge of financial technology and of just organizational principles writ large. And so, you know, I think maybe it's just the self-selection, but the entrepreneurs that we see in this space, the really high quality entrepreneurs, you know, that is the real scarce resource. And, you know, they're just frankly incredible when when things really start to, to get humming. And, you know, I think the, the thing that uh, you know, all these founders probably won't um, come out and say, but is readily apparent to me is that you know these people are playing for much larger outcomes than just a C corp. You know, you might get to a billion, two billion, three billion dollar valuation for your C corp equity, and that's great. You know, you'll probably sell it. You know, maybe you'll try to SPAC it, take it public, whatever. That's great. But when you look at DeFi and you look at you know the cash flows, these protocols accrue you know, it's very easy to see these being 10, 50, 100 billion dollar businesses. You know, the meme used to be, you know, which coins will beat a trillion. But like, I think that will eventually happen Um, just because of the way the token works in the system and the way it captures value and just the community owned nature of these things. Um, And so, you know, I think that that's just a long winded way of saying that. The entrepreneurs in this space—they're playing for a lot more than just traditional entrepreneurs—and and and their kind of caliber of talent and attitude has to match that that pace.
0: It seems like you guys aren't just looking in in DeFi, but part of the thesis is to find that crypto-native unicorn founder, right? And it w- we'll come back to you know some of the founders and the archetypes uh, a little bit later because I think it's super interesting to dive into more. Um, But before we do, can we we talk about another element of of the thesis that I feel like uh, Framework, the way you've structured uh, your your company is a little bit business. And this is, if I understand it correctly, Vance, you have kind of two sides to your, I guess, like investment uh, business. There's two sides to Framework. There's kind of the fund side where you're actually like actively investing. And then there's also the lab side where you're actually participating in these networks in various ways. So it's almost like a, an activist investor type of flavor where, where you're doing both sides. You're investing in the networks, but you're also participating in them. Can you talk about that a little bit so we can understand how things are structured and why you've decided to structure it that way?
2: On the activist investor side, I think uh, activist usually comes with a bit of a negative connotation you know, generally, like with these protocols, we we come in peace, we're definitely opinionated, and we definitely want to see things get done. And, you know, I'm happy to be, you know, pushy with teams or with the community just in the spirit of pushing things forward. But, you know, our our bias is, is, uh, you know, to the protocol, and then to the founding team, you know, in that order. Uh, And, you know, early on in the life cycle, when there's more of a core team than a protocol that may flip, but, you know, once this thing is live, You know, it's like you've created this public park and it's basically all of our job to maintain it and make sure, you know, it doesn't kind of just become this tragedy of the common style situation. In terms of, you know, labs and ventures, ventures is our principal, you know, uh, investing entity. uh, And that's where we do most of the venture work out of. Um, But labs, the reason why we have that is because, you know, participating actively out of a fund is very difficult. You know, there's admin, there's audit, there's tax complexities. But more than that, you need to have the talent in house. Like we have a full engineering team. You need to be building infrastructure. You know, you can't really do that out of a fund. Uh, you need to have mechanisms for in, participation, in governance. And honestly, that works best out of a C corp. And so the idea of labs was just fully born out of you know how do we provide <clears throat> you know services to our portfolio companies uh, in the way that is the most valuable. And so you know you'll see us doing things like you know participating in governance. You'll also see us being. You know the largest trader on a lot of the protocols we participate in and that's because we've built custom trading infrastructure that you know does really remarkable things um, to help bootstrap volume bootstrap liquidity uh, and show people you know how you can use these protocols an example of that is our futures trading strategy so what we do is you know we'll look at binance and we'll look at the perps on binance and, and we'll trade them when the funding rate spikes and we'll hedge that out on synthetics and and you know, really, we were the first people to figure out that you could do this and that hedging on Synthetics Exchange was the best way to hedge a futures bet. Um, but really, we're building this to not only benefit the network in the sense that we're effectively harvesting yield from CeFi and giving it to the synthetic staker base, but we're also doing this to show people and lead the way on you know, how you can actually use these decentralized protocols to add value um, to a trading strategy, if you're a trading fund or if you're a retail customer or really whatever. Um, <clears throat> and so Labs is really just you know, it's our active participation entity. It's you know where we kind of demonstrate the value of protocols through. Uh, and then you know, coming up here, we're actually going to start you know building things and, and spinning them out. Uh, and so you know, eventually, we want to kind of see um, you know, framework ventures as just one business line that we have, um, where, while Labs kind of does you know a bunch of different things to support the protocol, to push things forward more generally in DeFi, uh, and just to be a good steward of the industry.
1: As a fund that is an active user of the protocols that you guys are participating in, you guys get access to some alpha that maybe somebody that just buys a protocol's token on uniswap doesn't have because you guys are you know in the trenches using the protocol for what it's supposed to be used for seeing it's positive seeing it's seeing it's negative seeing where it needs to get fixed and then also you have a stake in the protocol because you are investing in the tokens of the protocol which means that you guys are incentivized to work with the teams of these protocols to make their protocol better so how to, tell us a little bit about that process. So, so you guys are users of synthetics. You guys are users of Aave. Uh, tell us about your communication with these teams and how this is like kind of a conversation about how to iterate and improve the product.
2: Yeah, so, so I think the first thing is that, uh, and this is definitely different than traditional venture hedge funds, is that we do you know 95% of our business out in the open, uh, you know, whether it's in the Wi-Fi Telegram channel, whether it's in the synthetics Discord whether it's in the Ave Discord, you know, people can see what we're doing, and I and I think that gives them a sense that you know there is no kind of boogeyman behind the curtain um, with ulterior motives. In the sense that you know we're just very open and honest and transparent with the communities about what we do. And I think you know after we did that once, people started to notice it. After we did it twice, it was like kind of interesting. But then the third time, people were like, "Oh, interesting. <clears throat> These guys are good stewards of the protocol. You know, we can trust them." And I think. When you see this like backlash against VCs, you know in the market with things like Wi-Fi or Yams, you know right or wrong, you know I think that's why we haven't really been looped into that bucket, just because you know we're super close to the metal, we're super transparent, and people just know that we come in peace. Um, so I think you know that's kind of one aspect of what we do, but you know you're totally right in the sense that you know our whole strategy is that you know instead of being super large, we're just going to be super agile. We're going to be the first. We're going to be the heaviest user. We're going to be the closest to the metal. Like we're going to understand how these protocols work at a, at an atomic level, um, so that when it comes to making you know investment decisions, you know we can make those you know as accurately as any person on the planet. Um, and really, you know, this shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody. But the only way to learn about stuff is to just do it, and then to figure out you know if you're interested or if it's working for you kind of later down the road. Um, and so using these protocols and you know getting into the, the DNA of what's going on and understanding how the smart contracts are architected and what the vulnerabilities are, you know, that's just the standard part of our due diligence process in a, in a way that I don't think is fundamental to many other firms. Um, and that's because we have a full engineering team. That's because we have a full training architecture. That's because um, we're just super close to the teams and the DNA and the culture of the space itself. Uh, and I think that is, in a lot of ways, our unique advantage.
0: You know, Vance, it kind of strikes me that we're just talking about what, what you look for is crypto native uh, founders, essentially, right? So they're, they're not going to be the, the typical, you know, cast, the, the, the typical archetype who would start a Silicon Valley firm. Well, you guys are also not structured as the, you know, <laughs> the typical VC fund or the typical even crypto hedge fund. It's more of a crypto native fund type approach that you're taking, Right. And what also strikes me is that what you've been able to produce with this approach is this really incredible feedback loop, where as you're steward of the network and you add value to the network, well, um, then you start getting invited into the network more by the grassroots community. Um, it also provides a way for you to really learn about what you're investing in. It it, it strikes me—I don't know if this is if you if you think this is the case, but it strikes me that many um even even crypto funds don't actually know what they're investing in when they're in, when they're buying a token and when they're like investing in something and and certainly the, the traditional uh funds like have no idea what they're buying do do you see a lot of that like is there a information arbitrage that you guys have because you're
2: actually participating in these things and like using defi that they don't I mean, you know, not to toot my own horn, but but like absolutely. Um, we get a lot of questions of like, you know, how are you guys this close? Like, how do you guys uh, have this much information advantage? And, and I think the honest answer is just like, this is literally all we do. You know, Michael and I live together. Uh, we started the fund together. We've known each other for for five years and have been, you know, best friends in the foxhole of crypto and, and other startups throughout that. And, and I think just like the relationship between Michael and I, Uh, And just our commitment to building something that can be, you know, quite large and and hopefully outlast us is really kind of what separates us. And just in terms of, you know, bringing the same intensity to work every single day, you know, reading everything on crypto Twitter, meeting every single person, you know, if anybody on in the Link Marines or in the Synthetic Spartan, you know, needs help with, you know, the resume or editing things like that, like we will actually help them. And it's not just because like this is some like psyop, you know, information advantage. It's just like this is because this is all we do, literally. Um, and so just being, you know, as humanly cl- close to the possible or humanly as close to the metal as possible is really where all of our advantage derives from. Um, and I think what's what's really cool for us is like, you know, we saw uh, th- these couple of Chinese, uh, you know, blockchain outlets that posted this full story about us. And, and, and it was really well researched and it had all the details of how the fund started and, and what our thesis was and the projects we've been in. And we literally had no communication with those people before they posted it. Wow! Like you know, I'm I'm on I'm on Google Translate, like trying to like read like you know kind of broken Chinese like in English, and and it just like people notice this stuff. Like when you're authentic, when you're showing up every day, when you're bringing that same intensity, and when you're just showing that you know you're good stewards, it it reaps benefits. It it might take a little bit. Like we were deeply uncool for probably the better part of a year. And, and, and a lot of people still think our style is, is pretty whack, but you know, this is basically what we do um, and it's like the best job ever and we're super thankful for it and, and we're just kind of determined to keep giving back to the community and keep pushing things forward. Um, and, and I want to get to another point that you made, which is, uh, you know, these aren't the typical in, you know, founders, these aren't the typical people that you might invest in. I, I think that is like one of the things that I enjoy the most out of crypto is just the the sheer uh volume of the number of characters in this space <laughs> Like like kane is basically a pseudo-anarchist like it's pretty funny to me but that's, that's kind of what he is um, straight up yeah you know, <laughs> not even a little bit stanny is like this pretty funny uh fin- finnish guy um you know michael egrov Igar- is a you know x ex, uh x particle physicist um and, and it's just like the amount of people you meet in this space is super interesting and it's what keeps me super motivated. uh, And I just think it's an incredible, incredible vertical to be in right now. I feel like it's just like the island of misfit toys, like everybody, you know? (laughs) And then you have, then you have someone like Andre who, who, you know, he launched Wi Fi, and then I called him like two hours later, just like first kind of out of the blue call. And he described himself as, you know, the Joker and Batman, you know, chasing a car, caught it. He wouldn't know what to do with it. And, And immediately after that call, I looked at Michael and I was like, yeah, we have to buy as much of this as humanly possible. Uh,
0: <laughs> That's and- a complete opposite of what a Silicon Valley VC firm would do, by the way.
2: Oh, yeah. And, and there was discussion about it. And there was kind of like looking at the business model and what this could possibly be. And I, and I posted a short Twitter thread about the thesis on it. But, you know, things like that and opportunities like that, you really have to be prepared for. And if you have a traditional VC mindset in this space, I don't think it's just part of your natural kind of like reflexes to to think openly about that. For us, like we saw Andre in in this anti VC movement as a theme, and the fundamentals of the business were sound. But, like, if you're a venture capitalist and you see a theme that explicitly excludes you, you know, that should immediately be a cue for you to get exposure to it because (laughs) purposefully you're not supposed to be part of that. And if you can kind of help subvert that and help the company and help the narrative and help the protocol, like you can add outsized value to that investment. Um, And so, just like, Weird opportunities like that uh, is just the stuff that we live for.
1: It seems to be to me that you know, Framework Ventures suffered through the bear market just like the rest of us, right? And also just like the protocols that Framework invested in. Uh, and and one of the topics that we're going to go into is like what uh, what happens to a protocol and its community when it goes to a bear market and how it comes out of that. And it seems to me that you guys survived the bear market by just using this sandbox that is DeFi as your uh, ground for sharpening your sticks right as your ground for getting better and and kind of shedding traditional thought and just learning what works in the moment right and then as a result of this you guys have turned into just it, it turns out what works is just being good uh governors of a protocol as a result of this you guys have invested in uh things that you know have uh, have worked And you guys are now the stewards of these protocols. And so at this point, how do you guys, because you guys have limited energies, you guys have limited capital because capital is not infinite. So at this point, now that you we've gone through this bear market and now we seem to be, you know, quote unquote, going into a bull market, how has your learnings guided what you guys now decide to invest in? Like, what are the criteria for a protocol that you guys really look for? that kind of matches this thesis that you guys have generated over the last like two years.
2: So, so I think at this point, and and we started with, you know, probably 20 million um, when the fund started um, at this point, our, our energy is is probably the rate limiter and Michael and I's time versus our capital, you know, like we could make seed investments, series A investments all day. Uh, but like the stuff that, that we've always kind of like internalized and talked about is, is not becoming you know, the spray and pray VCs that do a bunch of different projects and, and have, you know, no conviction uh, or very little conviction and or just kind of working off of the signaling of, of other VCs and letting them kind of do the cognitive work for them. Um, for us, like I think we've always taken a lot of pride in investing in things that are deeply unpopular, um, you know, whether it be Chainlink, uh, which, you know, nobody has liked for for a long time, uh, except for lots of kind of grassroots organizations. Synthetics, which you know, got hacked, was a stablecoin project. Was located in Australia. Like that didn't seem like a natural candidate to be a good project. Um, but all this stuff, it just comes down to the people for us. Like who is leading the projects? Who's sitting in the chair? It's cool to have all these big brain theses about you know the future of money and you know the future of finance and and all that good stuff. And and to a certain extent, we want to see you know sound business logic, uh, good rationale, and thinking through the plan. Um, but you know more than that. You know, the people that are sitting in the chairs are doing the work. You know, if you have a cornerstone leader like a Kane or a Rune or a Leshner, they're a magnet for talent. And if you get enough people that are smart and they're dedicated and that are in tune with this movement and issuing a token and living that type of life, you know, a lot of it is possible. And so, you know, I think from our life cycle as a fund, we've shifted from, you know, being very thesis oriented, you know, which we still are to a certain extent to being a lot more people oriented now. Uh, and, you know, in a world where everything is conducted over Zoom, you know, we haven't met probably 70% of the founders in our portfolio in person. Um, it really becomes, you know, how good of a judge of character, of work ethic, uh, of integrity are you? Uh, and I think that, you know, Michael and I just happen to be pretty decent at that. Um, but also our networking in crypto has just kind of like allowed us to vet these opportunities a bit more. Um, but you know, for us, the stuff that we really enjoy is is making an investment, giving them a year, year and a half to get the protocol out to market, and just working with them in a really deep way to to help kind of bring that to fruition. You know, future swap is an example of that. That's hopefully launching in the next month. Um, Fractal is another example of that, which will probably be, you know, a little bit a little bit more of a gestation period into next year. Um, Teller is an example that'll launch this year, but like that's our bread and butter, like working with people and helping them build things that are important, uh, and you know, sticking with them through the good and the bad is is really just kind of what we do.
1: Finding good talent, good people and sticking with them through the good and the bad, that that's a great lead into where I kind of want to, to go with, next with this conversation and, and where that is, it's actually, I want to go backwards and I want to go back into like 2018, 2019, which was the grueling bear market, right? And, uh, you, and we've been talking about some of these like all-star founders that are a tr- ma- like talent magnets, but not only are they talent magnets, they're also community magnets, right? And so far. I think it's, it's very fair to say that all of the DeFi tokens that have done these kind of insane returns in 2020 and even before that are tokens that also generated community. So can you comment on how these, these successful DeFi protocols uh, are the protocols that came out of the bear market with like a working protocol and a very strong community?
2: The talent breeds, uh, you know, more talent and then, you know, that breeds a community and then the product needs to be there. But, you know, once those things hit full stride, you know, they can be very powerful. Um, and I, I think for us, like thinking about communities and how those spread and how those become viral uh, is a fundamental part of what we do. And, and it it's basically just like our ecosystem strategy. If you look at all of our protocols, you can probably notice a very common theme, you know. Uh, Chainlink provides data to probably all of the protocols that we invest in. You know, all of the protocols that we invest in uh, work together, providing their assets to each other, um, you know, giving preferred access to technical resources and just kind of having deep technical and cultural integrations. Um, And so, you know, I think this isn't something that a lot of firms have hit on quite yet, but like when you can take one protocol and you can mesh that community with another, it's so much easier than just doing a cold start of a community. You know when you can combine things, and when you can get people to work together, and when you have this idea of a tent where you know everybody's in the tent, everybody's growing together, everybody's extremely happy. Um, you know that is one of the more powerful concepts in crypto, and I and I think the marquee example of that is when Synthetix started using Chainlink oracles. You know the combination of those two communities really bred this fervor and this interest and excitement in not only a really great use case for Chainlink, but you know a high quality customer in Synthetix that could really help Chainlink and ride the wave of of just DeFi in general. Um, so I think that's kind of my first point just on the bear markets. Um, just the, the resilience and, and the perpetual optimism of founders throughout the past, you know, couple of years has just been incredible. Like perpetual optimism, believing in yourself, believing that you're going to prevail, um, you know, demonstrating passion and confidence. Like these things are force multipliers. This, this can take you from, you know, a few people supporting your project to hundreds, if not thousands, if not tens of thousands. And, you know, that's one of the main things that we look for in people is, is do they have that perpetual optimism to ride out uh, the highs and the lows? Because, you know, Michael and I, just from firsthand experience, ha- have had to do that as well. You know, we've had, you know, years where, where things haven't been awesome. Uh, we've had years like this one where things have been really good. Um, but it's all about having the perpetual optimism and the focus that, you know, you will prevail uh, and that things are going to go your way. It's just a matter of kind of banging your head against the wall, you know, a number of times until it works. Um, and that's kind of the main thing that we look for uh, as we go through kind of the bear and bull markets that are that are pretty common to this space.
1: I think that the most interesting thing that I've uh, observed over the 2019 transition into 2020 of these protocols is the the creation of culture in every single protocol. And we have these like. These memes, these shelling points of like a, a logo or a mascot for every single protocol. Like we have the the Link Marines, we have the Synthetics Spartans. Uh, I think Ave is now the Ave Avengers at this point. And so, you know, like these these community of people who are inherently interested in DeFi and maybe all had like some semblance of some thesis of DeFi, and that's why they were there. All stuck around through this bear market, bear market together, and and where it's, it's the people that are provably in it for the tech almost. And then also at the same time, there's also the financial returns if you are convicted, uh, have the conviction enough. But at, at the, going through the bear market as a community together generates this culture and community. And that's why we see a lot of memes coming out of every single DeFi protocol that has successfully made it through this bear market. And so what I'm bullish on is exactly what you said, where each each like a defi protocol is its own tribe but they're not tribal and the concept of composability in ethereum the composable protocols begins to make composable communities and that is ultimately coalesces into this one single defi community that i think is is uh, was successfully tapped into by yams because if you go to the yams.finance page you see a place for every single uh, one of these communities to like work with Yams. And that's what Yams really was, was like this pinnacle of community that turned it and that captured this energy and turned it into this own meme generating thing. And then we've also seen memes and culture already emerge extremely quickly out of the Yearn uh, and Wi-Fi systems. Uh, so when you guys think about protocols and, and communities, how do, you, how do you guys fit in culture? Or is it kind of just like a, an interesting afterthought?
2: No, I mean it's it's literally the first thing that we think about. I think the the, the community that we're best known for is probably the Link Marines and, and just playing a very early role in, in helping kind of develop that. But, you know, to your point, it's it's so true. Like I don't know if you really have a community until it's been through uh not a bear market, but just a market where, where or a period of time where things are more dicey and less sure. Um, you know, and a bear market is a great way to purge out the, the people who are not true believers. Um, and, you know, you see a lot of the memes and the culture and the, uh, the offhand kind of like, uh, you know, inside jokes form in these periods of, of tumult. And I think that is, that's perfect because, you know, you want to really kind of have a strong foundation of your community and, and an identity of who it is before you take it to a mass market. And, and the best way to do that is through, through kind of a bear market. Um, in terms of your point about like, you know, composable communities, like that's exactly, Kind of our thesis on community community uh, management and starting, uh, it's so hard to cold start a community. If you can, you know, use um, you know whether it be another community or or just a general theme to kind of bootstrap uh, your protocol to a certain level of usage and attention, you know that's the best way to do it. And I think a great example of that is is just Ave. You know, really, if you look at Ave's rise, uh, most of its TVL, you know, at least initially and through kind of probably um, mid this year, was Chainlink. And they were the first people to adopt Chainlink Oracles. You know, everybody who loves Chainlink, you know, puts all of their Chainlink on Ave uh, because they know it's secured by Oracles that they trust. And that's been a really symbiotic community. And, you know, that, I think that's one of the coolest things about this space is that it's not zero sum. You know, you can have a partnership in crypto that is so technically and culturally integ- integrated in a way that really isn't possible in traditional startups. Uh, and I think that is just one of the superpowers that this space has is that not only are things technically composable, they're culturally composable. Um, and you know, that's just like something that we think about a lot. And, you know, the other thing we think about is, is, is just smallness. You know, the best things start very small and there's this sense of either exclusivity or there's this sense that the rest of the market is ignoring you. Uh, and you know, that smallness breeds fervor and that fervor breeds, you know, a few more followers and those followers are really interested and that eventually kind of slowly starts to seep into the mainstream. And identifying these little cultural nuances and, and determining how they spread is something that I spend a lot of my time on. Um, and I think, you know, other investors kind of like think of this as like you're looking at memes all day. And it's like, yeah, I'm looking at memes all day. But like that's <laughs> you know, that's part of my job. Like yeah. if I'm being paid to identify themes and, and which themes might be profitable, you know, as long as they're followed up by solid technology, you know, hell yeah, that's that's what I'm going to do. And if that means spending time on a 4chan or Reddit or or crypto Twitter for hours and hours each day. That, that's that's just what I'm going to do.
1: Well, I, I guess the the meme is just really the rallying cry for that culture, that community we're talking about. Hey guys, going bankless is a journey, and you don't have to do it alone. So we're going to pause the episode with Vance really quick, so we can talk about some of the fantastic bankless sponsors that offer you tools to help you live a bankless life. As we all go westward, we need to get our values into the crypto world, but hopefully escape the tyranny of centralized rent-seeking institutions. And that's where Monolith can help you get your value into the crypto world while skipping over the crypto banks. Coming soon to Monolith is an on-ramp directly from your old world bank account into your smart contract wallet on Ethereum. And for those that don't know, Monolith also has a DeFi card, which uses DAI in your smart contract wallet, but on the Visa network. So you can go to your grocery store, swipe your DeFi card, pay for your groceries like a normal person and still be part of the crypto bankless crypto economic future that we are all excited about. So you can get your value from your bank account directly into your crypto visa card without having to go through any crypto bank intermediary, which is just absolutely fantastic. So in order to get started, go to monolith.xyz and get your bankless visa card today. I want to tell you about
0: another bankless tool that i personally use it's fantastic this one is for our us listeners it's called rocket dollar so if you have an ira or a 401k the problem is it's jailed inside of your brokerage show so your fidelity account your schwab account that means you don't have good access to crypto the only crypto that you can buy is in a trust form and it's marked up like 5x 6x 8x the price you're getting ripped off. So what you need to do is break your retirement account out of jail. Set up something called a self-directed IRA or a self-directed 401k. We've written articles about this on Bankless that we'll include in the show notes. Rocket Dollar takes care of all of the pain in getting set up. They help you with the paperwork. You can break your retirement account out of jail and also use the Bankless code to get $50 off. So make sure you use
1: that code Bankless when you sign up on RocketDollar.com to get $50 off. All right, guys, let's go ahead and get right back into the interview with Vance because there's a lot of bullishness ahead and I'm really excited about it.
0: I, I want to return to you like the, the way uh, David started talking about this, which is the bear market and get back to that theme that you were just talking about, Vance, of, of conviction. Because now that DeFi is on the upswing, I think we quickly forget um, what it was like in the bear market like how unorthodox these types of perspectives were, how contrarian they were, and how convicted you actually had to be to do some of the moves that you guys made in in 2018 and 2019. I want to talk about some of those moves specifically and some of those investments specifically. I mean, first of all, as a sector, people thought not only crypto is dead, right? But like maybe maybe Bitcoin is the only app, and there's this you know maximalist uh, kind of um, movement that um, did okay. But inside of crypto, everyone thought DeFi was just this niche. Everybody was investing in ETH killers, right? The next smart contract platform that would replace ETH and like supersede it. Everyone thought that that Bitcoin was the only app, and like what I'm really interested in is how some of your investments had conviction even among the insiders. So um, let's talk about synthetics for a minute. So you guys are well-known for a concentrated bet on synthetics when it wasn't very popular. And I'll, I'll confess, I was I was there back then, right? So when, when synthetics was called uh, Haven, right? And Haven didn't quite work. The way I understood it in 2018 or so was that it was kind of like a uh, a maker competitor. And I think that was kind of the popular belief. Um, there was this belief that that protocols can't really pivot. There was this belief that there was already a stable coin. If it was going to work in DeFi, it would probably be DAI and maker. Um, and nobody was, it was not popular to invest in SNX, to invest in synthetics. But what did you guys see that everyone else didn't? Why did you have such conviction about that investment at a time it was massively unpopular.
2: Yeah, so we we met Kane at uh, the Web3 conference in in Berlin uh, last year, and 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 that was kind of uh, you know our first introduction to the team. And we met him through Sergey, uh, kind of on the pretenses that you know they would be one of the users of their oracles. And and it really just started from you know a dinner of of hanging out with Kane and and hearing about his backstory, and and hanging out with Justin and hearing about. You know, his time as one of the technical leads at MongoDB uh, and, and talking to Jordan you know their business development guy who is just incredibly smart and savvy and, and you know back then you know crypto was was pretty much dead um, and it was like wow these guys are really talented like what are they still doing in this space like <laughs> what, are they, what do they know that we don't know and, and you know over a period of months like we would have calls with them and we would kick the tires and we would hear the vision. And they were very upfront about the shortcomings of of Haven and, and Protocol and, and the Oracle hack and like you know I I can't describe how deeply unpopular SNX was because like it had literally just been you know one of the biggest hacks in DeFi um, and you know for us like we we acknowledged that we saw it we we took their answers uh, at face value that you know they would fix these things that Chainlink was a viable solution to their Oracle problem and the vulnerabilities that it had had. Um, And and we tried to see, you know, like, where would DeFi be going next? And, you know, it's a mixture of uh, high quality synthetic assets that represent not only the U.S. dollar, but, you know, the Korean won, you know, leverage Bitcoin, leverage Tesla. Um, And it's a mixture of that. And then it's a mixture of, you know, these reflexive token economics, which not only build a balance sheet for, for the protocol itself, but it also builds this mini trading game where, you know, people are hedging their debt and they're kind of trading against each other. And really the hardest thing to do in a DeFi protocol is to get your first hundred users uh, that are trading real size. And and this seemed just like a natural solution to that problem. And so, you know, from that, from understanding the size of the opportunity, you know, if if you knew nothing about crypto and, and I dropped you in crypto and I said, point to where the profit centers are, you would immediately go to Binance and BitMEX and you would say, holy shit, if you can get leverage, you know, you're going to make a ton of money. Like this, this is the only space that you should be paying attention to. This is the only space you should be investing in. Spot markets are potentially not that interesting. Everything else is probably too early. But if you can get to some type of decentralized BitMEX, you know, that's a huge opportunity. And, you know, our thesis has evolved since then. You know, I think Synthetix is very likely to become a decentralized BitMEX style player. But I also think, you know, when you're issuing SUSD, SBTC, and those are viable, uh, inputs to the yield farming kind of craze that will that will take place over the next five to 10 years you know it has this interesting optionality as a protocol and so you know from that from michael and i talking um you know just from us batting around these ideas a thousand times from talking to kane you know 100 times you know we got to the point where we put in you know i think it was like 16 percent of our of our fund into synthetics it's kind of one of those moments where you clasp your hands, you take a deep breath, and then you're like, okay. Uh, but you know, I think one of the things that we pride ourselves on is just having, you know, more conviction in our fingernail than a lot of people do in their whole body when they start investing in stuff. And I think that just comes from you know doing deep research. Uh, Michael and I being able to be open and honest with each other about the shortcomings or the potential protocols, uh, and just for us, you know, acknowledging that you know this fund this this concept you know we view this as a startup like it's always day 1 for us we always need to be willing to take risks that that potentially seem a little bit crazy uh to the extent that they're well thought through
0: 16% is a very concentrated bet my friend like kudos for for having that one um uh, pay off and and again i i i just can't uh overestimate how unpopular snx was at that point in time like you know people were calling it a scam people you know it was just um it was not a popular uh, decision to make. One thing that's tripped me up, and maybe trips me up a little bit still, about SNX, maybe you can address, Vance, is people say it's uh, it's a recursive model, right? So it's basically all the synthetics that you're just talking about, which you know a DeFi bull would say, well, yeah, of course, synthetics are going to be massive on uh, in DeFi, massive on Ethereum, but the fact that all of synthetics, synthetics are based on the value of SNX is somewhat Recursive. It's almost like you know Wells Fargo backing all of its deposits with Wells Fargo stock. Like you know, what do you say to to this point? Because I think it's tripped some people up about synthetics as a platform and as an investment.
2: Yeah, and and I fully hear and understand the those concerns. You know, it's it's reflexive on its way up, and you know, it's potentially reflexive on its way down. Um, But for us, the idea that you can build this balance sheet in your native token. And that generates this reflexivity, which, you know, effectively forces people to trade and bootstraps your first, you know, 100 users. Um, that leads to uh, the idea of synthetics, the, the trading volume of synthetics, and just the culture of synthetics spreading to the extent that, you know, more people learn about it, more people trade it who are not SNX stakers. And then you eventually add in different types of collateral, like ETH, like, uh, or like Bitcoin, you know, to build that balance sheet out of things that are not just synthetics that eventually you will get to this ecosystem that is not just relying on synthetics collateral but all the fees are going to synthetic stakers um, that is a bit more healthy and you know those are things that we talk to the synthetics team about that you know we're actively uh, pushing for the re- the reality is that you know they have a lot of things on their roadmap that will um, just outside of you know the question of SNX collateral make the debt pool a lot healthier whether that's an open interest funding rate whether that's leveraged uh, futures whether that is um, Using uh, Sense's effectively virtual tokens on One Inch and Curve to to make this interesting uh, virtual bridge. Um, you know the problems of synthetics uh, are probably larger than just um, you know SNX is bad collateral. Uh, if you could you know identify the top three problems of synthetics, that would probably be number three to me, maybe even lower. Um, I think the better arguments are you know how do you grow trading volume more organically. How do you construct a trading incentive program that, that pushes volume through the exchange? Uh, how do you deal with cannibalization of Synth trading volume on centralized exchanges or protocols like Uniswap versus synthetics exchange? Um, but like, you know, these are all good criticisms. It, these aren't, these aren't uh, bad ideas or, or, or poorly reasoned things to think about. Um, for us, I just think, you know, if you have growth, if you have interest in trading Synths, if you can get them integrated into more places, Um, a lot of the growth that comes with that will solve a lot of the fundamental problems of the protocol itself.
0: It will put, okay. So let's talk about another one. So link, when did you
2: guys get into link? Oh man, link. Um, so we were, uh, we got into link in, I think it was September 4th, uh, 2017
0: Okay. All right. So, so if people are, you know, go take a look at the charts, um, you know, and, and see what the price of link was September 4th. You said 2017, not 2018? Yeah,
2: 2017.
0: Okay. All right. So, and at at the time, right? So I think um, at the time, 2017, 2018, 2019 or so, the, probably the insider thought, again, outsiders just thought this whole DeFi, this whole crypto thing is dead, but insiders thought this, um, including myself, oracles are going to be super important, right? No, mm-hmm. no, um, no dispute there, uh, no argument there. They're going to be super important for DeFi, but Link itself has very little value, right? It's just another utility token, and we just came off of an ICO mania where all of these utility tokens went to zero, right? So that I, I you know, might have been the common insider DeFi insider belief. But you guys, you started making bets in 2017. And then I, I imagine you followed up in, in subsequent years uh, with even more. So what did you see about Link, maybe as a system, and also about the the value accrual mechanism of Link that all of the DeFi insiders and crypto insiders missed?
2: So, so the the genesis of of our link investment was uh, Michael found this this paper called Town Crier, which is effectively uh, about how you can securely bring data uh, off chain to on chain, um, and it's written by uh, Ari Jules, who's a professor at uh, IC3, which is the Cornell Institute for Cryptocurrencies, who, who we've met a couple times. Um, so the relationship was was with some context, and we read it and we were like, wow, this is this is really smart. If there was a if there was a monetization mechanism and incentivization mechanism for an oracle network to do this. You know, that would be very powerful just because if you think about it from a hundred thousand foot perspective, you know, if you think about where value accrues in a blockchain world, because blockchains don't have networking capabilities, um, you know, a good choke point for pricing power and for value accrual is where, you know, data feeds or, or, you know, output uh, payments get processed uh, into and out of blockchains. And so, you know, philosophically kind of we thought that that was... Probably the main place where value would accrue, and that if you built a sufficient, sufficiently robust Oracle network, it would not only be this uh, thing where developers were using it just for kind of one-off price feeds or things like that. It would really become fundamental middleware for uh, developers um, to really build products. And, and at the end state, you know, developers would probably end up interacting more with an Oracle network as it starts to. Uh, store private keys, do off-chain computation, uh, bring data from off-chain to on-chain. than they actually would the the Ethereum base layer itself. Uh, and so, you know, that was the original thesis, and, and it's developed over time. And you know, for us, you know, we knew Sergey, uh, and so you know, the idea that this thing would take two or three years, um, you know, that was okay with us as long as we could talk to him and and kind of. You know, bounce ideas off of him, and and you know, when things were super dicey in 2018, we could you know get some just some idea of of, of what the plan was and uh, kind of like what his general vision was for for the entire Oracle network. And I think you know, for us, we view Chainlink as as effectively an insurance business, um, and and we view the Chainlink token as, as much the same. If you look at uh, you know the value that Chainlink is securing. Uh, it's about three and a half billion dollars right now, in terms of you know uh, projects that have integrated these oracles uh, into their fundamental architecture, and and you know this is the value that Chainlink is securing on the on the daily active volume side. You know it's probably you know five hundred million to a billion dollars in volume that Chainlink is actively securing uh, from McDex to DYDX to um, other kind of trading protocols, and so really I think for us the the grand vision of Chainlink is. Um, you know, number one, it's going to be a payment token for the ecosystem itself, but number two, uh, it's just going to be this, uh, this effectively, this insurance layer once staking comes out where people are verifying the quality and accuracy of their data feeds coming from off chain to on chain. Uh, and it'll kind of be valued at the similar multiple of, of maybe an insurance company. Um, and so that's kind of the general arc of, of, uh, of the investment and the thesis, um, the things that really tipped us off early to this could be something special was was just the community. Um, in early days, that was on 4chan, uh, and you know that's where I put his own problems. But in terms of a forum for uh, forward thinking, sometimes edgy talk about uh, technology, you know, 4chan is relatively undervalued. Um, you know, it was the first forum that I read about Ethereum on. Uh, again, the first forum that I read about Bitcoin on. Um, you know, if you're looking for people who are dissatisfied that is, with the status quo that are highly technical, that's usually a good place to look. And, and I think with the rise of like you know DeFi um, shitcoins being traded on 4chan, you know, it's probably a little bit less signal today. But you know, way back in the day, that was something that stood out to us, and we could say, "Wow, this is informed discussion about what this could be." Um, it's very likely the community brews around this.
0: That's another thing only a crypto native fund would do is is like pick up investment thesis ideas from Fortune. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but it's like I you know for people who d- didn't uh, pull up the graph right. So you're talking about September in November or so, 2017. Link was trading at about 18 cents per link. Today, right now, it's about 15. Got as high as I don't know. Let's see here. I'm just, $20. $20. Okay. So that's been a successful investment. But like, so well, do, well, all of these utility tokens, you, you, said, you mentioned payment token. You also made the case for like kind of insurance, why, why uh, Link has to be valuable because it'll be used for, for staking. But a whole bunch of tokens in that class uh, ended up dying in 2017 and have never come back. What is it about the Chainlink community? Like, so where do the Chainlink Marines come from? Where does Chainlink God on Twitter? Like, where does he come from? Like, who is that guy? <laughs> so many questions about Link.
2: This is, so we were doing an interview with Bloomberg, and uh, the woman was like, "Do you know who Chainlink God is?" And no way. <laughs> I, I was, I was, I was just like, "That is not what I thought we would be talking about." But all right. Um, so, uh, you know, on, on the token itself, I think the most important thing to understand about Chainlink is that it's in V one of its network, and and it'll be probably ten versions before the thing is fully decentralized and and the token is fully used in, in the payment mechanism, and the staking or, or the staking will probably be sooner than that. But uh, you know, eventually, what they're trying to do is just build out this two sided marketplace where you have data requesters and data providers, and and right now they bootstrap that with. Um, The aggregator contracts, and they bootstrap that with uh, node incentive subsidies where, you know, if projects want an Oracle, uh, you know, they can trust the 21 uh, top node operators on Cosmos, which are effectively the same uh, node operators on Chainlink to provide that same base layer security to their data feeds. And, you know, if your base layer isn't as secure as your Oracle network, like I really don't understand the premise of building on blockchain other than regulatory arbitrage. So I think that's like the most important thing. As the network matures, it's going to move from an aggregator contract to more of a service level agreement, where uh, smart contracts uh, and node incentive or node operators are interacting on a uh, service level basis to provide data, uh, and then have things like you know which type of infrastructure are you running? Okay, how much insurance are you willing to stake on this Oracle request, and so on and so forth. So, so that's going to that's going to take a, a little bit. Um, but like our vision of this network is that. You know, it starts with DeFi, it expands an enterprise, and eventually this just becomes the entire middleware for the smart contract powered economy, which is definitely a buzzword, but it, but it's entirely true. Like, if you ask people back in the day about how long it took them to sign documents and how onerous that process was, and then when DocuSign came along, how much of a sea change that was in the pace of business and how much more effective things were you know that's largely what I think will happen with uh, blockchain and oracles and, and, and things like that. So you know it's it's a huge bet on you know the future of the industry as a whole uh, and the need for high in, high quality uh, uh, data on chain. In terms of the link marines and where they come from, it's uh it's funny. Like you know populism is real in crypto. You know having these leaders sure. which are not. Um, driven by venture capitalists, which don't have this kind of undertone as being, um, you know, elitist. Which you know, a lot of honestly, the blockchain marketing and the blockchain ethos comes off as uh, to normal people. You know, that spread this community of of you know people that are just interested in the concept that uh, you know oracles are powerful and you know they can potentially play a huge role in kind of the next phase of, of blockchain. And I think that you know, having just a more diverse base of people than, you know, smart contract developers and wealthy people that live on the West coast of the United States, you know, that actually breeds a healthier community than just kind of the circular uh, stuff that we see a lot of in, you know, whether it be DeFi or blockchain writ large. And so when people ask like, where do the link Marines come from? It, it's honestly everywhere. Like I've met people who are literally blacksmiths in Tennessee that are like Marines, you know, <laughs> hitting me up on Twitter. Um, you know, I've met people in Florida that are like Marines that are like looking for help with their resume. You know, it's really a, a movement that exists outside of the popular narratives of DeFi today. And, you know, if you think of things that are indicative of where the future is going, that's usually pretty prescient.
0: Yeah. You were talking earlier about that VC backlash. I mean, I guess this is all part of it, part of this, this, uh, populism. And I, you know, I gotta say the, the part of the reason the bankless movement has been so successful to this point is is due to that, right? Like, at some level, people see the v- VCs as well as they they should. The Silicon Valley VCs and you know the East Coast uh, Wall Street folks they they see those as the, those people as the banking class. Like that's kind of what this movement is meant to disrupt, right? It's it's about bringing some credible neutrality to to the everyone, man. so everyone competes equally uh, in these markets rather than having an established class sort of get um, get advantages. So, I I, I I can see it now that you put it that way.
2: Absolutely. I mean, that's that's what this whole movement is about. Like, you know, you can go on your computer with, you know, any amount of money you have, deposit it into Aave or yield farming or really whatever, and, and earn money. You know, there's no middleman. You don't need to rely on some centralized institution. Um and and I think that that is that is hugely hugely powerful. Like the the venture capital backlash in this space is is not just constrained to um, you know some of the egregious behavior that funds displayed in the 2017 run-up with the smart contract platforms and ideas that just weren't well thought through that, that people pumped money into and then dumped on retail, but it's indicative of a larger larger societal trend of people being sick of um, a few institutions, a few people having information rights and information advantages over the rest of people, and so for us, like you know, we're all for this populist wave in crypto. Um, just because I think it speaks well to the ethos of what we're trying to accomplish.
1: So this brings up a really good point, and it's a conversation that's pr- pretty close to my heart. And so we ha- we have Ave, we have synthetics, we have Link, we have Compound, and we have the Compound governance module. And then we also have uh, you know yield farming and liquidity mining. And what all these things are trying to do is trying to get tokens into the hands of the users in order to turn over the keys. Uh, of, of the kingdom to the users of that are actually using the protocol. And, you know, partly we want to do that because that's part of the ethos of cryptocurrency. But also the teams that are building these things need to exit because a lot of what is going on in DeFi is straight up regulatory arbitrage, right? Like a large part of the cryptocurrency world is uh, ignoring the regulations of the nation state uh, and and doing their own thing in a way that is the the best for the user, but not at all best for the nation state. And so we just talked about like the banking class, right? And and there's and and that is a institution of people and finance that doesn't really want things to change, and they definitely don't want the DeFi protocols to kind of soak up all the value in the space. And so, you know, if if Aave and if Compound and if all of these DeFi protocols grow to as big as we hope that they will, there is inevitably going to be some backlash. And so that's why... Compound started this whole movement with this governance token that now all these other protocols are following suit because it, it. I think everyone knows that in the future, there's going to be a lot of vested interest in stopping this this movement, right? Like the legacy system, the, the incumbents don't want things to change because that's what incumbents do. And And what this bull market I think really resembles is this coming... Um, You But more or less middle finger to the legacy system that is giving over the keys to the kingdom before the the nation state and the nation state regulators can even like figure out like what is actually going on. And the idea here is like we're going to liquidity mine these tokens and get them into the hands of the users so that no one can enforce KYC, right? So that no one can actually know who these users are. And so we just uh, these protocols gain anti-fragility through chaos, right? And so is that is that an okay take? Is there anything that that you want to throw a flag there? or is that something that you kind of uh, agree with?
2: You know the the protocol for launching a protocol today is is much different than it was two years ago. It's not let's get you know a bunch of ICO advisors, let's pump a bunch of money into it. Let's you know negotiate with centralized exchanges so that you know we have a good uh, you know some good price action on, upon the listing. You know, let's make the, the team lock up super, super short so we can get some liquidity on our holdings. You know, today, uh, it's, it's a mirror image of what happened in 2017, you know, no money, we're going to liquidity, liquidity mine it, no listings, you know, it's just going to be on Uniswap for who any, whoever wants it, uh, lockups that last forever, you know, most teams are doing three or 40 years, Synthetics actually voluntarily locked up all of their team tokens for an, an additional year, uh, last month. Um, and this is three years after the initial ICO. Um, so really the playbook has been flipped on its head. And I think all of this is a response to um, just the market shouting at people that you know, 2017 hurt uh, and, and they don't wanna see that again. But also it's a reaction to regulators effectively saying, you know, if you issue this like a security, we're gonna come after you. And you know, I think in a large extent, what we're doing today is a lot healthier with liquidity mining and distribution. Um, especially the projects that, that really have that be kind of their first principle. Um, instead of like doing an equity cap race and distributing, you know, tokens to the cap table, like compound, you know, you do something like Wi-Fi where it's just like the tokens are out there, you know, go get them if you want them. I, I think that's like a relatively more powerful approach. Um, I think on the regulatory side, you know, there's, there's going to be, and, and I had a conversation with this, uh, about this with a smart uh, investor a couple of weeks ago. His point was, you know, there's now so much money being made in the space um, that, and, and most of it's on paper, admittedly, uh, you know, that there's going to be some type of, of regulatory backlash. Like people are, are, are starting to notice. Um, and so whether that is, um, you know, Hester Pierce creating a regulatory sandbox for, uh, you know, blockchain protocols, whether that is some type of precedent coming down the pipe uh, on, you know, a U.S.-based company, uh, you know, about how they have done their decentralization process, you know, there will be some type of regulatory clarity, which will reorient people in terms of, okay, you know, they said we can't do this, you know, so this is appropriate, and eventually we'll get to best practices where um things will get uh, just more and more decentralized, more and more transparent until regulators are, are okay for that. And and I think, you know, the point of regulators is to make sure that that people don't get hurt and and when people get hurt is when things happen in opaque, um, you know, information advantage situations, um, where things are more centralized. If you do things fully decentralized, and if you do things in a fully fair way, the role of a regulator changes from this weird pseudo-babysitter that has to play whack-a-mole with a thousand scammy projects to someone that is auditing code and making sure that the interest rate model model on Compound actually works, or the interest rate model on Aave actually works, or the synthetic staking pool is as healthy as it could be. And I don't know if you guys saw this, but a couple weeks ago, the SEC put out a job request for someone who could actually read uh, smart contract code. And I think, like, if I think about the future regulation, that's where I want it to head. I want them to be auditing code. I don't want them to be playing whack-a-mole. I think that is a far higher leveraged uh, job that they could be doing um, and I think it benefits the consumer just an order of magnitude more.
1: That's a, a pretty interesting take about the the future of regulation in DeFi that I haven't really heard before, and it's definitely an optimistic one, where regulators come in and just like make sure everything is is going okay, rather than trying to shut everything down. Um, in, in a world where Compound and Aave and synthetics are like you know multi billion dollar platforms with with tons of value, and it and it is. Actually, making dents in the legacy financial system. Uh, do you, how adversarial do you think this world is about to become when it when the uh, when regulators find out that DeFi protocols actually can't they can't be swayed to the regulators' whims? Do you think we're about to enter an adversarial world, or or, or do you think it's going to be a little bit more cooperative than that?
2: All, all of the you know if you read all the regulatory precedent, whether it be. Uh, on, you know, mixers, or whether it be on, uh, you know, ICOs from 2017, you know, really all the biases, if, if there is this one centralized actor, if this is this one centralized controller, you know, there's problems. If you can get to this decentralized form of governance, and this decentralized form of just effectively protocol organization, um, I think it becomes more of an open question to regulators as to, you know, who is responsible for what, Um, You know, what is our regulatory jurisdiction? Um, You know, who do we need to come after? And, you know, like, we are all for regulation and the maturation of this industry. Like, I think the industry has its roots in crypto anarchism, but eventually we're going to have to grow out of that. And I think that's fine. Um, What we should be doing right now is giving regulators the tools and the context to kind of follow us on that journey so that we can make DeFi a hundred billion trillion dollar asset class, you know, something that people take seriously, the, you know, and, and one of our investors is a, is a, you know, very well-known wall street guy. And we walked him through, uh, and he deposited assets on BlockFi. Um, and we walked him through what compound was, and he was saying, you know, what, like, what do you mean I can get 30% yield? This seems like a scam compared to BlockFi, which, you know, is just a centralized institution that I can trust. And, you know, once we walked him through, you can audit the code, you can audit the quality of the collateral, you can see in real time how the interest rate model is behaving. On the other hand, BlockFi gives you literally no, you know, transparency into what they're doing or how they're doing it. And they're paying you a third of the interest rate. You know, it was clear to him which one was the better uh, bet for him to put capital on. And, and I think that regulators are, are largely going to see that as well. I think on a human level, you know, when you take things out of people's scope, they don't really take that well because you're diminishing the importance of their job, but I think it actually opens up a much more broader interpretation of what regu- regulators can do in a market that is completely transparent.
1: And so, throughout this conversation that we've had so far, we've been talking about like the importance of community in in when it comes to like the how these DeFi protocols work, right? Like a DeFi protocol without a community is not a protocol at all, and especially with the coming world of, of regulation, which is coming to crypto, that there's another very strong reason as to why community is so important. Because if you are creating this governance token that governs over the protocol, you need a group of people to hand off that governance token too. A, a, a governance token without a community is just decentralization theater. And then we're, we are going to have the same kind of laws and regulations upon these, uh, you know, quote-unquote decentralized protocols that aren't actually decentralized as they would like a centralized lending institution. And and I think that's where like the, the conversation of the protocol sync thesis comes into play because communities gravitate towards protocols that are deep in the protocol sync thesis. Vance, are you familiar with the protocol th- uh, sync thesis, by the way, before I keep on citing it?
2: No, no, I am, yes.
1: Okay, great. Now that's good to hear, first off. Um, and and so, so yeah, g- communities gravitate towards things that are dense in the protocol sync thesis that are at the bottom, A, because they're good investments, but B, because of their credible neutrality, right? And so I think the protocol sync thesis is going to be this magnet four at things, applications, protocols that I hope regulators look fondly upon because the reason why they are down in the protocol sink is because they are credibly neutral, they are fair, they haven't scammed anyone, they've they've maybe they haven't followed regulation to a T, but they haven't harmed any anybody in the process. And so like my kind of bullish thesis for for DeFi at large is that the protocols that are dense a cannot be touched by regulators, but B regulators don't even want to touch them because they've dot, dotted all their eyes and crossed all their T's. Is that a fair take?
2: Uh, totally. I, I think the the superpower of Ethereum is that it's the incredibly neutral, almost Switzerland esque, um, you know, platform for people to build on, uh, and I and I think that is you know viewed favorably in the eyes of regulators. If you looked at the CFTC um, kind of comments on, on what its security versus commodity status was, if you look at um, you know, even kind of any of the uh, big consulting uh, firms such as Deloitte or Ernst and Young, you know, they they look upon Ethereum as this neutral compute layer, um, and and I think that is the main tailwind that Ethereum will, will benefit from. If you look at something like, you know, pick your eth uh, attempted murder, um, it, it's it's so much harder to claim you know neutrality in the age of venture investment, in the age of, you know some of the applications that are getting built on top of something like Solana, you know getting uh outside share tokens it it just it just doesn't come off the same way and so i i really agree with you in the sense that like ethereum superpower is the sense of like you know benevolence towards developers um incredible neutrality uh and just a sense of fairness and a lack of platform risk uh but you know that that also comes with downsides and i think that with the ETH two schedule, we've seen that um, you know in a leaderless decentralized organization, things just take a little bit more time. But you know, computers took like forty years to fully be realized. It's been six years since Ethereum came out. Like we can afford to be patient. Um, and if it's a two year time horizon for ETH two, if it's a three year time horizon for ETH two, I think that'll look like a speed bump in the general arc of this technology.
0: Yeah, to- I think probably both David and I totally agree with your Ethereum thesis there it it should not ever sacrifice its credible neutrality for some short-term velocity as many other ethereum murderers as you put it are doing right now attempted, um, murders. attempted murders there you go all right so uh, let's let's move a little bit further to current state defi and talk about that for a minute so here's something like so bankless listeners will be very familiar with um our thoughts on um, DeFi tokens writ large, right? That they are essentially proto-capital assets or could become them. They are these governance tokens where the governors of the tokens, once decentralized, can actually vote in cash flows. And then uh, these DeFi tokens can become capital assets with on-chain value flows or cash flows, which means you can value them based on something that uh, y- you know people are familiar with in the stock market world, which is net present value of future returns, essentially, right? So we learned this in business school. Um, that's super cool. But something that I think you guys realized before maybe a lot of people and before me, because I'm just recently observing this as well, is that... Um, there's actually even more premium in some of these DeFi assets than just the value flows and just the cash flows. So you tweeted this out, Vance. I caught this a um, few weeks ago. You said, and we'll take SNX as an example. So that's the synthetics token that we've been talking about earlier. And you said something like valuing SNX based solely on volume fees, uh, volume and fees on the, synthet- the synthetics exchange is undervaluing it. What I think you were saying is that valuing SNX just based on its ability to generate cash flows is actually undervaluing it because there is some other hidden premium here that makes it even more valuable. I want to talk about that. What is this additional premium that makes SNX even more valuable than just the volume and fees? We'll just take SNX as an example because I think it's a useful one
2: and uh just like a primer on valuation um for for those who aren't familiar if uh if you look at any protocol whether it be uniswap or compound or synthetics you know you, the fees that accrue to that protocol either from the fees that are generated from trading uh for uniswap or synthetics or, or the the spread between uh the borrow and lend rate on something like compound you know that is the basis for what you value the protocol on and and generally you know if you look at uh, consumer internet startups or, uh, you know, protocols themselves, they trade on on what is effectively a, a price to earnings ratio. And, and price to earnings ratios are, you know, the fundamentals of how you value things in, in traditional finance uh, and, you know, just some comps. So so late stage mature uh, SaaS startups, so software as a service uh, that are listed publicly, they trade at around 10 to 20 priced earnings. Um, earlier stage stuff, you know, it can range from infinity uh, to uh, you know being something more reasonable in the you know three hundred to four hundred to five hundred range. If you look at all of the DeFi protocols, you know, that exist today, and you try to value them, generally they trade at hundred to two hundred times their their fee base on a yearly basis. So that's their price earnings ratio. So if a protocol has a uh, million dollars in fees. It'll probably trade at around 100 to 200 million dollars, and, and this this valuation band is, is something that hasn't moved in actually the last six months. So so it's been relatively consistent as building up a valuation benchmark. Um, in terms of my point with synthetics, you know, there's two ways to value synthetics. One, and, and
0: by the way, Vance, before we get away from that valuation band, that valuation band price to earnings ratio, it's not crazy, right? Like that like netflix off. is about 88 or so high 80s you know amazon is in the hundreds isn't it
2: yeah no it, it really isn't um and i think like you know you can you can make the argument not financial advice that uh <laughs> this stuff is you know potentially undervalued relative to its total addressable market um but but really like what the price earnings ratio tries to express is um, you know, number one, how much is this protocol making in fees for, for its holder base? And number two, uh, you know, what is the market's expectation of growth? You know if you have a super high multiple, like like Netflix at 88, you know you, people are still expecting Netflix to grow a huge amount. Um, but if you have something like 100 to 200 in a very early stage consumer tech industry that's taking aim with the largest financial market in the world, you know, that's when you start to be like, huh, OK, maybe this is relatively undervalued. Um, and, and so that's that's part of it. The other part of this is how directly um, do the cash flows uh, of that protocol or a company tie directly to the stock or token that is underlying it? in a stock like Netflix, Netflix does not actually pay dividends. So, you know, you're you're never actually going to earn any of that cash flow. It's all going to be reinvested into growth of that company. For something like synthetics, um, you know, you're earning those fees directly. They pay out a dividend every single week. And so, you know, again, when you talk about that hidden premium, it's a result of a few things. It's a result of a the moneyness of the token and the monetary premium it, accru- it accrues. Um, B, it's a, it's a result of that token having uh, just more direct access to cash flows and being a more efficient vehicle for value capture. Uh, and then C, you know, it has additional premium because the governance of tokens is more direct than you would have for a stock. And so, you know, those are the three things that are that are generally universal and why tokens, uh, when compared to equity, trade at you know three to five x um, you know what you would see in an equity counterpart. Um, like you know, Ripple, I think raised around at you know two or three billion, uh, but the tokens are valued at around ten billion. And so you know, it's the market's perception. It's the um, it's just the general attitude that the tokens have some type of premium versus equity. Can we In- talk
0: about a fourth too, like a, a maybe a D here, which yeah. is what I'm coming to maybe understand? So we were talking earlier about kind of this uh, this uh, token mashup uh David used this I think brilliant term David, we want to see an article uh composable communities right and um that was maybe best exemplified the first time i i you know, like saw how powerful this was in yams where you like brought all of these uh tokens together and like they could be jointly farmed in these yam pools, right but uh the lucky i don't know seven or eight or so tokens that um got in those. Pools were tokens that had really strong communities, right? Very desirable communities, right? Like, um, you know, XRP was not invited, um, even if it was tokenized on Ethereum, right? But synthetics was, YFI was, um, other tokens with with powerful communities. And what we saw is maybe this like this this fourth thing, which is like a farming token premium. I don't know if that's fleeting, whether that's just like the current state of things, or or whether that's more lasting, but. When YAMS launched and started shooting up in price, all of the, the tokens that had um, YAM farms essentially where you could farm with them, they shot up too, right? Like we're talking like 50% in a day for things like comp and, uh, and, and Aave, Lend, and Wi-Fi. Uh, th- what do you think about that idea, the, the farming token premium idea? Is that sort of just a fleeting thing like one time only uh, or is that, is that real too?
2: No, that's uh, that's like that's spot on. And uh, to, to the synthetics example that you threw out, like you know, as a synthetics holder, I'm earning money from the fees of the protocol. But you know, I'm minting when I take synthetics. I'm minting SUSD, SBTC, sETH, and the things that I can do with those synthetic assets are I can put them in Curve, and just from those synthetic assets alone you know, I can earn 45% yield on top of what I'm earning onto the synthetics, uh, just the the exchange fees. And so the valuation point that you were making earlier is like, the valuation of synthetics should be the composite of the exchange fees and the yield farming fees that you accrue uh, from its synthetic assets. And so juxtaposing this next to your example of like, Wi-Fi and yams and synthetics and lend and you know, all the tokens that seem to be the potpourri of You know when you're trying to bootstrap a defi community these should be allowed to be yield farming assets i i agree with that in some sense um but like do i think that yams will be the monetary base for the new financial revolution (laughs) you know I, i may disagree with that however for things like susd and sbtc that serve as representations on chain of something that you might not otherwise have you know those premiums are sustainable People will always need a synthetic form of Bitcoin on Ethereum that they can trade. Hmm. People will always need a synthetic form of this synthetic US, of the US dollar that is truly permissionless that they can trade on chain. And so for me, I view synthetic assets that synthetic synthetics produces, like SUDSD, SBTC, SETH and virtual tokens as having, you know, this shot to really corner a market on, you know, being the uh, collateral that allows people to yield farm with. Hmm. Um so like when FutureSwap launches, you know, a USDC SBTC pool, you know, that'll allow you to earn future swap tokens. Or, you know, curve you can put SBTC and SUSD into like those premiums will sustain. You know, I don't know if, if Yams or Wi-Fi as a monetary basis, especially including the the locking mechanisms that their governance has, if those will retain their premiums long term from just yield farming. But you know, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. You know, those two assets. Are absolutely. I mean, at least Wi-Fi is just a cash flow machine, um, and its valuation uh, will be reflective of effectively all the yields in DeFi writ large.
0: Okay, so so you do think this yield farming mechanism will continue to command a premium? You're just skeptical on some of the maybe underlying more memetic assets, like a, a YAM, for instance, right? And its long term value. But I want I, I want folks to kind of connect the dots here in, in sort of the analog world. This would be like owning a share of Apple stock, right? Let's say I owned a share of Apple stock and I was able to deposit it into my Chuck Schwab account and then earn Tesla shares as a result of doing that. If I deposit my Apple shares, I lock it up in this brokerage account, I can start earning Tesla shares. That's kind of what we're doing here. And we're doing it like in order to uh, distribute the the tokens to communities so it seems to be the case that tokens with very strong communities like a like a Wi-Fi or an snx will just be valuable because other tokens want to uh, harness the power of those communities and they're willing to give them their tokens in order to do that their capital assets it's like like i'm willing to give apple shareholders uh some tesla that i print because Apple shareholders are a fantastic community that I want as part of my Tesla governance. Is that kind of what's going on here?
2: Yeah, I mean it's uh, like the distribution of like when you try to bootstrap a, a, a protocol with um, an interest of like you know if you start um, you know Wi-Fi eight, you know the sequel to Wi-Fi seven, and you have YAM and Wi-Fi and and lend and, and SNX, you are kind of like bundling those composite communities into. Know, what you hope will be an amalgamation of yours, um, and, and then, like I go back and forth as to whether DeFi yield farming is a short term or long term thing. On one hand, you have uh, you know Compound and Aave and all these guys um, messaging that inflation will continuing for four, will continue for four years. I think. You know, this is basically um, kind of the same game played over and over and over again. At, at first, people are really interested in playing a game, but you know, the more iterations it has, it becomes, you know, marginally less exciting. I think that, you know, from yield farming, where we build from here is, um, you know, perpetual swaps coming on chain. Um, I think that'll probably be the next leg up with with layer two and and things like feature swap or perpetual protocol or derivative X um, or synthetic futures. Um, And then from there, you know, we're basically at feature parity with centralized exchanges. And so, you know, that's when we get into the really interesting things of being able to ship high quality synthetic assets like Tesla or oil. And and really, you know, that's when the centralized exchange experience will effectively be no more superior to DeFi. Um, And I think that's when we see kind of spot and and leverage volumes go from, you know, today they're about 5% of centralized volume to I think about 50%.
1: I do want to give a, a shout out to Dan Elitzer because he wrote about this concept of, of uh, composable uh, assets uh, in his very old piece, uh, old for crypto, uh, Superfluid Collateral and Open Finance, where he wrote, he wrote an article about how you can deposit Ether and die into Uniswap. And then there's this token that it comes out of that, which then you could use as collateral, right? And, you know, what Dan wasn't equipped with at the time was this world of DeFi governance tokens, which are themselves capital assets that other DeFi token protocols are using to tap into to distribute their capital assets. Uh, And so, like, right now, like, in this in this world of a capital asset pseudo equity tokens that are yielding a further capital asset pseudo equity tokens, right now the yields are good, right? Like in in urine finance, the YUSD, formerly known as, as the YCRV token, it's earning like 50% APR on your DAI or on your USDC, which is insane. And then there seems to be like every new week a new liquidity mining yield farming tool that is tapping into all these other pseudo equity governance tokens that that uses those energy in those communities to distribute their token to make their protocol like governed by the community right and so like we have we have re- returns we have people leveraging like compound and ave to access the capital in their tokens to purchase more tokens to do more yield farming which and the borrowing of that money creates yield in these protocols which is why people are supplying crypto dollars into these protocols to begin with my point is, is that right now the music is playing, right? And so long as you can access, you know, 50% APY on your crypto dollar inside of Yearn, there's going to be capital coming into the space to access that. Um, and like people will say that APR, like high APR means high risk. And that's generally true, but also not necessarily like there could be no risk and there could just be just, just returns. Um, there's definitely risk, by the way, Um and and so, as so long as people are able to access returns, like the capital will flow, like the capital will come in if, it, and this is the way that it worked in 2017, like people made money. And so more money came in. And then those people made more money. And then the music kept on playing. However, at some point. The music has to stop because that's just how these things work. The music just doesn't continue. And at some point, the music will stop playing. And then these, while there will still be yields, these assets that these yields are coming from will start to depreciate in price because the selling will commence. And then, and then while the yields will still be there, the assets that everyone owns will depreciate. And then that's when the tide will turn. And we go from bear market to uh, from bull market to bear market. That's my kind of like 18, 24 month time horizon for, for DeFi. That's kind of like my game plan that I've kind of integrated in my mind.
2: I, I think in a lot of ways, what's happening right now with the vegetable coins uh, feels unsustainable. Um, and that's because, you know, it probably is, uh, people are just forking code that already exists, whether it be, you know, and it's mostly the composite of like the compound governance module and the SNX staking contract. And, you know, maybe you've thrown a rebase in there and then it's like, okay, we're good to go. Uh, but like, you know, that won't continue and that won't sustain this industry much more than a couple, you know, two or three months, you know, what, what's going to happen is that, and and I think we have really good eyes on this just because we have uh, a lot of early stage protocols that have yet to launch. You know, people are going to release perpetual swaps. People are going to release options, uh, smart contract platforms. People are going to really start to take share from centralized exchanges. And then after they take share from centralized exchanges, they're going to take share from centralized OTC desks and and the market will, will continue to expand. And I think if you think about you know, where the yield is coming from. The yield is coming from just a fundamental bullishness on the size of the opportunity today, which is relatively well defined. It's just, okay, step one, eat all the centralized exchanges. And and that, in and of itself, is probably a hundred to two hundred billion dollar aggregate market cap opportunity for DeFi protocols. Probably more. You know, you look at the valuation of BitMEX, it's around 12 billion. You look at the valuation of FTX, it's probably three or four, you know, you add up Coinbase, that's another probably 15, 12, you know, you can get to $50 billion in in aggregate market cap on an equity basis market opportunity. And if you think about the premium that tokens accrue, you know, it's probably four or five times that. So as long as the industry starts or continues to make progress towards eating these businesses in earnest, um, you know things are, are, are going to go our way, but it's not just going to be the same game of musical chairs that people keep playing. Uh, people will just get bored of that, like you know the Spaghetti Coin or whatever. Michael and I got into the office one morning and, and we kind of looked at each other like, "Do we want to farm the Spaghetti Coin?" It's like, no, we we don't want to do that. Like, we we've done that. It, it's it's cool. Um, like, we have more of an eye towards innovation and, and what's next. And I think you know, the things that this next leg up of DeFi really depend on is, is layer two. Um, or, you know, a new blockchain like Solana, even though I'm, I'm less bullish on that. Um, but, you know, assuming there's progress with layer two, and, you know, I think the one that we're most bullish on is is uh, Optimism and OVM, you know, we can, we can really make this not just a flash in the pan, not just like in, in crypto, there's this weird conception that bull markets only last a year. Um and like if you look at every major technological shift, um, over the past thirty years, like that's been a ten year rearchitecting of an existing industry where multiple players have had huge outcomes, and I think like that's where we start to go eventually. Um, but I think you know the first step there is uh getting to a transaction latency that can replicate the centralized exchange experience and solve a lot of the front running issues with the oracles that currently exist.
0: Let's. Let's fast forward, Vance. It's been super cool. Let's fast forward. Let's say some of those Oracle problems are are resolved, front-running problems are solved. Let's say layer two is resolved, OVMs, optimistic roll-ups, whatever. What's next for DeFi? You mentioned a few things, but what's really going to add energy for this next bull market
2: cycle, do you think? DeFi will eat the OTC desks? then it will eat the centralized exchanges. and, and and it's not going to be this like massive one thing that comes out of the blue and just changes the industry completely it's going to be the stuff that we've seen in the past just composability building on itself you know culture and communities building on itself and you know it'll happen slowly and then it'll happen all at once and and i really think that a lot of the ux concerns about using defi are starting to be resolved and 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 like that combined with real layer 2 experiences um, will effectively make DeFi competitive decentralized finance in, in effectively all ways, uh, minus the KYC. And so, you know, going into Q1, Q2 of next year, I expect layer twos to be up and running. And I think that's when we really start to see our next inflection point. The next three months kind of feel like, you know, everyone's still building, you know, DYDX is moving to layer two, Synthetics is moving to layer two, some other ones are moving to layer two. Um, and I think that will be kind of you know, Q1, Q2 will be when things really start to take off from from attraction and user perspective. Um, but you know, I, I will say the other thing is, you know, if something like Serum or something like, um, no, well, I guess basically just Serum is successful, you know, that could really accelerate the industry and, and and the narrative of ETH as a settlement layer in a way that would be positive as well. You know, I don't think this is here some game, um, but you know, I, I think it it really. Usually, the stuff that that you don't think of is the stuff that uh, ends up mattering, um, and you know we're kind of all eyes on on what that might be.
0: So it's kind of this probability cloud of of potential outcomes, and you're kind of you know, trying to guess which one might uh, might come true now, but making bets on all of them. You mentioned a few things. Main to get specific, you mentioned um, a teller, I think, a, a fractal a future swap. These are unreleased uh, DeFi primitives, as I understand this. You want you want to. Tell us about one of those. Just pick one and and tell us about something new.
2: Yeah, uh, Fractal is, is probably the newest one. Um, so Fractal is uh, currently a centralized company. It's it's the largest market maker in DeFi. Uh, it's the largest market maker on Zero ZeroX. Um, it's led by a really sharp guy named Carson, who's uh, you know physics PhD, McKinsey guy, but just you know absolutely hilarious and, and loves to mix it up into in generate DeFi circles. Um, and really like, you know, we met them and, and they were like, yeah, you know, we're, we're trying to do this uh, centralized market maker thing, um, you know, we're trying to, you know, maybe, you know, get bought by jump or something in the next few years. And we were like, hold on, hold on, like, let's let's turn this into a protocol, like, you know, market making is a primitive that should exist in DeFi today, in the sense that it is a market neutral strategy that, you know, everyone is paying an arm and a leg for if you're a project trying to get market made on a centralized exchange. You know, this should be a public good for people trying to serve uh, and get liquidity, just like Uniswap is a public good for projects that want permissionless listing. And so, you know, there's so many hard problems with Fractal that we're working on right now. You know, how do you put the trading strategies? How do you put the logic on chain? You know, what's the best way to govern this? You know, this looks like kind of an on-chain fund. How do we how do we shift that narrative to be, um, you know, more of just this is a, a traditional market maker? How do we do? Uh, Off chain computation, how do we build exchange relationships that will allow something like a DAO to trade on it? Um, I think that's most of the new ground that we're breaking. But if you look at the citadels, if you look at the jump tradings of the world, if you look at um, you know any of these really large market makers, you know, these are five to 10 to $15, $15 billion businesses. Like, these are huge and, and they're really the fascia of um, the centralized exchange and traditional finance world. And so I think building that and building that in a high quality way that can be community run is a public good you know something that we're really 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 excited about and, and the team is just like extraordinarily talented uh, and yeah we we just led their last round and and I think that it'll probably be you know another six or twelve months before they get out of the gate but you know, building those fundamental primitives into DeFi is just something that people need, and and you know we hear it from our portfolio companies, and, and that's just generally the first sign that we look to as in terms of, you know, this is really needed. So super excited about Fractal and those guys, and and I think that, you know, in a in a space where everybody is just kind of forking and copying each other's code, you win points for creativity and you win points for thinking a little bit further into the future, uh, and I and I am really hopeful that Fractal can be something special. That does sound exciting Vance. This podcast episode has
0: been absolutely insane. Thank you for joining us. I want to end with this. This is always fun. You strike me as someone who likes to make predictions. We'll <laughs> see we'll see if that's the case. And at the at the start you talked about leg 1 of your three-leg thesis at framework is look the the total market size, the TAM of this entire finance industry is absolutely massive. It, it's measured in trillions, uh, T with a T. Um, let's talk about predictions by the end of this cycle. These things always play out in cycles, whether the cycle is one year or, or 10 years as as it could possibly be. But at the end of this cycle, um, what are we going to see in terms of total value locked in DeFi? What are we going to see as far as market cap of DeFi protocols, market cap of ETH, market cap of BTC. Those are the things I think I would be most interested in hearing about.
2: Yeah, I, I think in this next cycle, um, call it the next twenty four months, you know, we'll we'll get to ten billion and then it'll look like, you know, that was forever ago. I, I think we'll probably eclipse probably a hundred billion, maybe something like five hundred billion, uh just in terms of total value locked in DeFi. Um especially as, you know, things like um, you know, Curve and Compound and Aave really start to get their hooks into the traditional finance ecosystem, you know, that combined with a ton of liquidity being pumped into the market by central banks, I think is kind of the perfect storm um, for just DeFi writ large.
0: Wait, let me let me make sure I got that. So you're saying total locked value right now is about 6 billion, up from about 1 billion in February. And you think by the end of the cycle, 24 months, we could be as high as half a trillion?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know <laughs> that's unreasonable to assume. I mean, the, these, like, there's this chart that we have where it's like, you know, DeFi today, size of Ethereum, size of Bitcoin, um, size of traditional finance. Like, like we're not playing for DeFi just being this niche thing. Like we're playing for DeFi integrating itself into CFI in a way that, that people don't fully understand could happen. Um, and that's why, like when I illustrate the size of the total addressable market for finance, I'm not just illustrating the size of crypto; like I'm illustrating the size of you know traditional trading infrastructure, and so you know I think we'll get to 10 billion, we'll blow past that, we'll probably get to 100 billion, um, and then you know it, it really depends on on where Bitcoin and Ethereum go. Um, you know, if <laughs> if we get to 100 billion and then Ethereum quadruples, like you know we're we're pretty much looking at a, a, a new asset class in a way that really has not been described before, and so. I mean, my personal bias is that people have trouble thinking in terms of exponential regression. Um, most people think in terms of like linear step changes. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that we get to 100 billion uh, and then optimistic upside is, is 500.
0: All right. Hit us with ETH market cap and Bitcoin market cap 24 months into the cycle.
2: Oh, man. Um, <sighs> ETH market cap. I mean, you know that's tough uh i think you know we'll be looking at you know probably you know 500 billion trillion dollar protocols at some point you know i don't know if it's really going to be in this cycle it could very well be um but like you know the the market opportunity for this and, and it just seems odd to talk about because it's like you know three guys on a podcast in a relatively niche industry but like this is this is the promise of, of this technology is 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 actually becoming this neutral sediment layer that the people all around the world actually use um and and so you know i wouldn't be surprised to see you know a couple of these protocols become a trillion dollars you know at some point
1: so here's one for you ether
2: flipping bitcoin is that on the table I mean, you know, personally, I've I've never been a, a gigantic fan of of Bitcoin. I think there's just some logical absurdities, um, on on just like its general sustainability. Um, and I'm much more bullish on more expressive platforms that have internet native culture. So I do think that will happen at some point. Um, you know, when you have things like staking, when you have things like, um, you know, ETH ETH two phase one coming out, it feels pretty, you know. Undeniable that the potential of Ethereum will be known by the wider market. So, you know, I, I feel somewhat confident in saying that, yeah, ETH, ETH will flip in Bitcoin at some point in this next cycle. Bullish.
0: Vance. Yeah. Bullish. Definitely. (laughs) Vance. David, you and I need to get ready for some new Bankless podcast visitors and listeners. If everything Vance said comes true, it's going to be a crazy 24 months. Uh, Vance, it has been an absolute pleasure. This has been a load of information. I think the Bankless Nation is really going to enjoy it. Thanks for joining us.
2: Awesome. Well, thanks so much, guys. I really appreciate it.
0: All right, everyone. Uh, This has been episode number 28 with uh, Vance Spencer that is from Framework Ventures and action items today, guys. Um, I mean, you've heard us take some time to digest all of this. <laughs> that would be my first uh, action item suggestion because there's a lot here. Maybe listen to the podcast again, maybe a third dime at half speed if you want to pick up everything. Um, also start to get involved in these communities. Um, do what Vance and Framework are suggesting, except on your own, on a micro level. Get involved in the Wi-Fi. Get involved in YAM governance proposals, if, if you want. Get involved in synthetics governance, just to see what these networks are all about. That is the bankless way. And that's how you start to understand what these tokens are, what the investments that you're making are, is by getting involved, getting active in these networks. We've also even put out a um, ETH validator, uh, how to join as an ETH2 validator in testnet, that's a way you can get involved as well in Ethereum 2 and what's going on there and understand the latest state of the testnet. We'll include that as a third action item and a link to that. Um, in that that was written in bankless just last week guys as always this is not financial advice risks and disclaimers eth is risky so is crypto so are the assets we talked about today if you choose to use some of these protocols remember you could lose what you put in there can be hacks there can be bugs but we are headed west this is the frontier it's not for everyone but we are glad you're with us on the bankless journey thanks a lot